You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. Hello and welcome to Security Unlocked, a new podcast from Microsoft where we unlock insights from the latest in news and research from across Microsoft's security engineering and operations teams. I'm Nick Fillingham. And I'm Natalia Gadilla. In each episode, we'll discuss the latest stories from Microsoft security, deep dive into the newest threat intel, research, and data science. And profile some of the fascinating people working on artificial intelligence in Microsoft security. If you enjoy the podcast, have a request for a topic you'd like covered, or have some feedback on how we can make the podcast better, please contact us at securityunlocked at microsoft.com or via Microsoft Security on Twitter. We'd love to hear from you. Hello, listeners. Welcome to the third episode of Security Unlocked. And hello to you, Natalia. It is October. The leaves are turning. It is the time of year of uh, candy corn and high fructose corn syrup. (laughs) I know you love October. I do. I am all in for pumpkin spice lattes and cybersecurity awareness month. A match made in heaven. <laughs> you know, if they if they reformed the Spice Girls, you should you should uh, audition to be the sixth Spice Girl called Pumpkin Spice. Two Don't out of ten that on that joke. Two out of ten. I thought it was pretty good. <laughs> anyway, Cybersecurity Awareness Month. Is that a Microsoft thing? Is that an industry thing? What's all that about? It's an industry thing. But Microsoft is definitely invested in doing their part during this month. So it's really exciting to see everyone empowering the cybersecurity world to get the word out, which is what we do on this podcast too. Exactly right. I was just going to say Security Unlocked, the podcast, every episode, we're about you know, helping spread the word of the importance of cybersecurity and helping empowering our listeners with more information about how all this stuff works. Yeah, I'm excited for this episode. We've got a great lineup. First up, we talked to Hardik Suri on the importance of keeping servers up to date, um, but more importantly, or more specifically, how he and his team are working on behavior-based monitoring to protect what's referred to sometimes as undersecured or underprotected servers. Yeah, and we talked to Dr. Karen Levy about her background and how she came to cybersecurity through a really interesting journey. She's been a medic. She's been in the Israeli Defense Forces, all with the intent of just doing good. And she'll talk to us about her perceptions of AI and how neuroscience and the rest of her background connect to cybersecurity. It is a great conversation. It's a great episode. I hope you all enjoy it. Let's get on with the pod. Hardik Siri, welcome to the Security Unlocked podcast. Thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. Could you start by just introducing yourself, telling us about your role at Microsoft and what you do day to day? Sure. So I work as a senior security researcher with the Microsoft Defender ATP research team. I'm currently based in Vancouver and my daily responsibilities is, you know, getting up to speed on all latest threats which are out there and, you know, just checking if which ones are, you know, impacting Microsoft products. And if they are, how do we, you know, durably detect and protect these latest advanced attacks? 
anything which touches the endpoints would be under our radar it could be uh, exploits it could be malware it could be you know an email with an attachment uh, when the user clicks it downloads itself and you know does all those funny things so anything any suspicious or malicious activities happening on the endpoint we get visibility as the product and then we try to see how we can detect that part and you know prevent that from you know abusing a lot more so your research process starts with the signals coming from the product. And then when you find something that is suspicious or interesting, that is your jumping off point to dig in further? Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. So, so there are two ways. Either we proactively go and find things and then we come back and see if we've got something in a telemetry or if telemetry can, you know, give us something interesting. And then from there, we can pivot on and, you know, find uh, what really happened. And so, Harik, you authored a, a blog post you know, in June called Defending Exchange Servers Under Attack, which we'd, we'd love to talk about. Mm-hmm. Could you walk us through what you discovered and how you addressed it in this June 24 blog? So, how it all started was we had telemetry on some a piece of code called uh, web shells on these exchange servers. So, web shells are nothing but they are comparatively small piece of code which an attacker can install on these servers and then can control the exchange server in terms of running commands or dropping more binaries or, you know, moving laterally. So that piece of code on the server is critical to the attacker. And if you find any any instance of that piece of code, we know that the server is already compromised and the attacker is already operating on that server. That was the starting point. And then uh, when we look at the server in detail, we could see uh, what all actions the attacker did, whether it was, you know, doing reconnaissance activity that is trying to, you know, enumerate all the entire organization and the users and finding which critical accounts he should target. Or is it like dumping credentials? Like uh, if he can get credentials, he can move laterally around the organization and, you know, impact or infect more machines. So that was the starting point where where we see a web shell installation. That's a very uh, like an alarming alert for us. And then we would deep dive and see what all the attacker did. Were there challenges in detecting this threat? Oh, yes. So it's not your typical endpoint infection. When we say the server's getting compromised, these servers already have a lot of inbuilt tools which attackers can abuse. So they don't really have to bring their own tools, which can be easily detected. But if they're already using existing tools and scripts which are used by admins, then the, the, the traditional problem comes where how do you detect if this is an activity done by an an admin of the server or is it an attacker doing the activity so the whole challenge was to you know separate out the clean or the noise and just focus on the malicious part which the attacker did i wanted to ask about web shells you talked about it being sort of relatively small pieces of of code let's just sort of explain that a little bit so a web shell is a piece of code that exposes the shell of the system to the web is that accurate Yes. So how this works is a web shell is is nothing but a small piece of code which exposes functionality to execute code on the endpoint. So how would you would install a web shell would be these exchange servers have uh, folders which are accessible over the internet, right? So if you can install that piece of drop, that piece of script there and, you know, visit that URL, you can control that script and you can pass uh, the command you want to execute as as a http url or it could be you know it, it could be part of the cookies or any http uh, section and internally the uh, the listening script would get that piece and you know execute it on the behalf of the server so how a process tree uh, looks is the exchange server the instance of the exchange server is actually executing these commands on behalf of the attacker 
So how are we evolving our techniques for detecting and blocking, especially when it comes to evasive technologies like web shells to evade the file-based protections? File-based detections would not be a durable, a long-term solution for this. So what we did was we kind of started profiling the behavior activity of these exchange servers and, you know, uh, understanding clean activities or clean behaviors you would see in an exchange server, which helps us helped us in eliminating uh, the noise we were seeing in these attacks. So Microsoft Defender has these powerful behavior components where it can inspect the behaviors initiating from these exchange processes. And then we can see what kind of activities these are doing. And based on that, we can, uh, you know, with some confidence say that if it's trying to spawn, like if, let me give you an example, if exchange server is trying to spawn cmd.exe or mshta or these uh, known suspicious system files, then it's highly likely that it's, it's been compromised and there's a web shell on the server. And are these behavior detections, are they sort of rule-based or are they a bit more dynamic? Are they, are they taking into account, you know, other factors and maybe more sort of machine learning-based determinations? Mm-hmm. So yeah, so they are uh, very generic in nature uh, and we do... Uh, take input from machine learning. So all these behavior patterns, they're getting fed into the cloud behavior machine learning models. And uh, what that helps us is uh, the machine learning model can then provide blocking uh, advices to these endpoints where even if the behavior, the endpoint behavior components is missing something, the machine learning can you know catch that based on its intelligence and still block the attacks. So we have this parallel technology where we have these behavior patterns which which is collected from the endpoint and it's getting fed to the machine learning and then machine learning is getting more intelligent and can actually block future attacks. So what do you recommend security practitioners do in order to protect against the exchange server attacks? Sure, yeah. So the first thing, the the most common one is to, you know, apply patches. Since these machines are very critical to the business, uh, so it's, it's a common saying that if exchange server goes down, the business goes down. So applying latest security patches is the top priority the admin should take. The reason for this is that we are finding a lot of exploits or vulnerabilities in exchange servers which can be exploited and which can allow the attackers to land on these exchange servers directly which is a game over for the organization. So being proactive in applying patches is certainly the topmost. Second, keeping uh, the security solutions up to date, right? So don't turn off your antiviruses, your firewalls, your network protections. Keep them on and, you know, keep them updated. Uh, There has been kind of a myth where, you know, the admins would disable these security products so that they don't really interfere with the critical workings. Uh, But what is required here is a, like a more intelligent understanding of what settings to turn on and what settings to not turn on if they are actually interfering. So just outrightly, you know, turning off the security solutions is it's not recommended and, and you know, would open the door for more exploitations. And, you know, restrict access and follow something called a principle of least privilege with credential hygiene. So keep all privileges to the lowest and the ones which are really required, keep them at certain privileges, avoid using highly critical credentials across machines. And finally, uh, prioritize alerts. I'll say, uh, since all the organization have some sort of central logging capabilities where they can, you know, see all the alerts coming in, any alert from the server should be considered high priority and should be investigated thoroughly. 
you know this would help in you know limiting the impact because from our experience uh, the the time the attackers come into the system they would spend days on just doing reconnaissance on the on the systems they would not jump on executing things they would just be there and you know enumerate the users and try to understand the environment so that would take days and if we can you know identify and detect and you know block them at that stage that would really limit the the harm they can cause so moving forward is some of the the work that you've done here and you talk about in this blog is that actually going to help customers that have exchange servers where they may not have both of these things, where they, they haven't applied the latest security updates or they have turned off or, or greatly sort of minimized uh, some of the security features? Is some of this behavior monitoring that you talk about in this blog, is that a sort of an, an additional layer of protection? Oh, yes, that's an additional layer, I'll say, and a more durable layer uh, where, uh, you know, the the attacks on exchange servers are very different from attacks on endpoint, where you would not see the attackers bringing their own malicious binaries, which would get detected by these antivirus software. They would generally rely on the tools which are already there on these exchange servers. For example, if they land on exchange servers, uh, one of the things they would want to do is dump the emails, right? Because these servers are known for, you know, containing all the organization emails. For dumping and, you know, exfiltrating these emails, they don't really have to bring any tool of their own. There, there are commands already installed on these servers where they can just run the run them and, you know, get all the emails. So, so while the file-based or uh, the traditional uh, antivirus solutions may not, you know, detect these attempts, the behavior components can ge- can surely detect this, where you would see uh, email getting dumped and then getting, you know, getting zipped and then getting exfiltrated. All these different events we can correlate together and then piece a picture together where this could lead to this could potentially be an exfiltration of, you know, corporate emails. So that adds a lot of value and a lot of uh, protection. And what's next for the behavior-based blocking? I recall in the blog you had outlined that there are ways in which the threat actors are starting to evade our detection. So one example that you gave was Mimi Cats. Mimi Cats could be blocked, but there's a different way that they could leverage Mimi Cats or like wrap the program in order to get past our detections again. So I'm, I'm sure it's like a cat and mouse game where you're continuing to evolve the product while they're continuing to evolve their techniques. So what's next? Doing more investment on these servers uh, is, is something in the pipeline. Like you rightly mentioned, attackers would always play a cat and mouse game with with files where we would detect something and they would you know modify that and then we stop detecting that that's where the the behavior component is so important the cost of changing a behavior is is much more behavior translates to a technique so the effort to you know create or you know use a new technique by an attacker the cost of that is much more than you know simply wrapping a binary or you know adding some or removing some bytes which kind of evades the detection so the whole point is to how to increase the cost for an attacker to you know uh, uh, to you know execute an attack. And wh- while we sit in the uh, in, a, in a more generic uh, layer where he, they might you know evade our file-based detections, but for them to you know really evade us completely, they have to like create a new attack from scratch, which we have seen that the attackers would, won't do. They would generally want to reuse whatever they have you know created on different organizations. So. Uh, the behavior component will always be a very a much more durable way of protecting uh, customers. I'll say. Hardik, was there a, an aha 
moment for you and or your colleagues when you were going through this process? Did a particular piece of data or telemetry sort of allow you to, to see the big picture in, in, a, in a sort of a, in a dramatic way or was it a sort of slow drip? Well, it, it was it was a slow trip, I'll say, because the attackers, you know, it's not a, like I said, it's not a typical endpoint detection where the the whole infection is over in few seconds or minutes. These attackers are in your organization for weeks and months before they, you know, start doing anything malicious. So we need to be patient, and you know, we need to be watching them all the time, and you know, lay traps for them to, you know, uh, if they do something, we we get the telemetry and we block them out right. Well, the aha moment was uh, when they were trying to abuse this thing called exchange management shell. That's a very critical piece of platform uh, which the admins use to, you know maintain the exchange servers and few of the actions could be you know exporting mailbox emails or you know migrating them while we could see the attackers you know doing your typical uh, activity of reconnaissance and that credential dumping the moment we saw the attackers you know going after the the exchange management shell and trying to dump the emails that was the point we could really understand the motive of the attackers and we could also see uh, what kind of emails they were looking for like we they could they were searching for specific subjects. They were searching for certain strings in the body. So we could really understand the, uh, you know, the mind mindset of the attackers and what they were actually after. So what was the end result of the attacks then? So they exfiltrated credentials as a result. What did they do with them? So they were really after the corporate data or the, the content in those emails. And they were, you know, trying all their effort to how they can dump and, you know, exfiltrate uh, this part. Because the exchange servers would contain all the critical information and uh, emails would be one of them. We did see them moving to other machines where they could find more information. But if we keep focus on exchange servers, the, the, the emails were what they were after. Was this with the goal of selling this data or compiling a large data set to use for other malicious intents? These are really advanced attackers, right? So they would, uh, these attackers would generally use this kind of information to, you know, gain more information on the uh, organization, right? It could be your typical uh, corporate espionage cases where, or IP theft cases where they would, you know, want to collect all the IP intellectual properties of uh, an organization. We are not sure at this point how they use that data, but that seemed like an intention based on the strings they were searching inside emails. The behavior modeling that's happening on the exchange server and then the, uh, the, the machine learning that's up in the cloud, can any of those learnings, those behaviors, that learning, can that flow into sort of other models to help protect other servers that are open to the web? I'm just trying to, th- you know, I'm wondering if some of the work you've done here is going to filter out and benefit other products and services. Oh, yes, certainly. So the, the ML model is quite generic and it doesn't really serve exchange servers only. It provides protection for all the for all the endpoints, right? So if we detect something on one endpoint and that same technique is used on, on exchange servers, if the cloud already has that information, it could have you know outrightly blocked that. So it kind of collects everything and doesn't really differentiate between what endpoint that is. And you know, malicious as malicious doesn't really matter if it's on exchange server or an endpoint. Hardik, what do you do when you're not a security researcher? What do you do for fun? So so I'm a musician. I play guitar. Back home, I had a had a rock band, which I was part of. So yeah, so music, I'll say. What kind of music did you play? You said a rock band, but who would you sort of uh, align yourself with musically? 
Oh yeah, so we were a rock band, and you know, uh, my influences would be you know your typical classic rock, Led Zeppelin, uh, Deep Purple. In modern rock, I'll say Tool and uh, you know Dream Theater. So progressive stuff, I like that. What was the name of your band? Uh, it was called Twisted Flyover. It was named after a flyover. So my house, when my workers used to come to my place, he has to had to cross a flyover. It was, and that flyover had a lot of circles. So he was kind of confused. There were different exits. So he always used to take the wrong exit. And he just once just said, like, man, this flyover was so twisted. And that's how we came up with the name. Nice. No, and it's not an homage to uh, Twisted Sister? Oh, no, it's not. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. Well, Hardik Suri, thank you so much for your time. Thanks for doing great work. And yeah, we look forward to more updates from you on the security blog in the future. Thank you. Thank you for having me. I had a great time. And now let's meet an expert from the Microsoft security team to learn more about the diverse backgrounds and experiences of the humans creating AI and tech at Microsoft. Hi, Karen. Welcome to the show. Hey, thanks for having me. Well, we're going to kick it off by just setting the stage a bit. So it would be great to hear what's your current role at Microsoft and what does your day-to-day look like? I am a senior data science lead in Microsoft Defender Research Group. I'm part of the CyberSci team, which is cybersecurity AI, which means that our team is consisting of researchers and data scientists that we're trying to tackle problems related to security and protect our customers using the muscle of machine learning and data science. Could you talk a little bit more about the makeup of the team? So how many people are on the team? What kind of backgrounds do they have? So my team is currently five people, including myself. We're coming from completely different backgrounds and actually completely different nationalities as well, which is pretty nice because each one of us brings something very different culturally and technically to the team. We have someone with the background of robotics, someone that was uh, in the Navy working on uh, sonars, someone with statistics background, and someone that has been for many, many years in Microsoft on different roles, so brings all the aspects of the business into it. And Karen, how about your path to Microsoft? How did, how did you get to Microsoft? What interesting entries would we see on your, your LinkedIn profile? So I think that if you'd look at my LinkedIn profile, you wouldn't understand, first of all, what I am and second, where I'm from, because uh, it's so there are so many different entries. So I'm a data scientist, a programmer, a security consultant, a neuroscientist, a medic, and coaching girls to code. So I think those are the main things that you would see on my LinkedIn. I joined Microsoft uh, two years ago. Me joining Microsoft was after returning back to the security field after a few years in academia. Before I was in Microsoft in this role, I was a data scientist in academia. That was after I did my PhD in computational neuroscience in Switzerland. So moving also states and uh, countries and roles. Before I was doing my PhD in neuroscience, I was in the security field. I was in the Israeli Defense Forces. I was a pen tester. At that time, I was also doing my BA in psychology. And before that, I was volunteering as a medic also during this time. So quite a way until I got here today. That's a fascinating resume. How did you find yourself going from the sort of paramedic world into psychology, into neuroscience, and then, you know, here to Microsoft and AI? Was there, was there a catalyst that spurred each of those changes or was it sort of organic? I think the main thing that uh, is associated with all of those different things that I did is my 
burning need to impact as many people as possible and to help people. And every time it's coming from a different aspect, if from the beginning it was uh, from the medic aspect and then protecting applications against bad, bad actors. And then I wanted to do research and help in the combining the medic plus the data. But then academia didn't give me exactly what I wanted because it was indeed helping mankind with progressing science, but I wanted to see the impact of what I'm doing. And that's what I found in Microsoft, which is using my computational skills with protecting our customers against bad actors. You just mentioned taking the sort of medic part and mar- marrying that with data. Could Can you expand a bit on, on what, what that means? Actually, it's very interesting because in what we're doing, and that's the reason that we're using AI and machine learning, is that we're trying to protect in the security world from patient zero. So when someone is getting hit by malware, it's very easy to then, once you know it, to block it. But we need to use AI in order to predict it and protect it before we even know that this is malware, to be able to generalize it before we've ever seen it, and to protect the first person that is going to potentially be attacked by this malware. And that's, that's patient zero. And that's our patient zero. So it's like predicting that this disease is going to come or that this disease is going to affect that person before it's actually happening. So besides the fact that like being a medic and wanting to protect patients, this is very similar to also protecting our customers against malware. There are also some similarities when I was working from the other side of the medic, helping the medics and the firefighters to know to which cases to send ambulances. So there is a very limited resources in each city of the ambulances that can be provided to incidents. And when someone is calling 911, that decision of whether to send an ambulance or not, that decision is very crucial because if you're not sending it, then the person might not get the treatment that they need. But if you are sending it to something that they may not have needed it actually for you to commit cold, then you're wasting your resource. In my previous role in the data science for social good, we built a machine learning model that was trying to predict in real time whether an incident will require an ambulance or not. So something similar we have done recently in my team, where we have for our enterprises, the product that we give them is producing alerts and they need to respond to those alerts. The security operator is sitting there and seeing all of those alerts. Now, some of those things, they we might give them the alert, but it's not as crucial. And if we waste their time looking at it and trying to understand what it is, they might then not invest the time in something else that is more important. We know what is the amount of time that they have, and we're trying to prioritize to which alerts they should give the attention to. So what other experiences do you bring from your history to this current role? I know we talked a little bit about your experiences as a medic, but you also have that interesting diversion into computation and neuroscience. So how does that play into your current role today? So besides the fact that my computational neuroscience, I learned a lot of uh, neural networks and machine learning, which is all of the models that can be transferred and also used in order to identify, uh, classify between malware and clean files. I think that the main thing is that the neuroscience is an interdisciplinary field. And the same is security. Security is a huge umbrella of all those uh, subtopics. And the same way that there is no like a specialty of neuroscience. Each one is coming with a different uh, toolkit that they're trying to investigate a common problem. That's what I do in my team. 
my team is consisting of different backgrounds and each one is coming with their specialty. We have someone that is uh, an expert in statistics, someone that is an expert in security, someone that is an expert in reverse uh, engineering, someone that is an expert in reinforcement learning. And we're all bringing our toolkits together with us to solve together that big problem that we're facing. That if we will just come with one approach, we might miss all of those other opportunities that we have to solve the problem. But together, it's like a non-linear summation of our powers together. If you're looking at each individual bringing a specific toolkit to the team, do you normally sit back and think, okay, well, definitely need an expert in, like you said, statistics or an expert in a specific model, and then you look to build a team based on filling all of those gaps across the individuals? That's an amazing question, because this is actually something that uh, is very dear to my heart. I believe that diversity is not just in uh, the regular way that we define diversity with this bringing more females, different ethnicities. It's also about the different backgrounds. And the thing that I am looking for the most when I'm looking to add someone new to the team, I sometimes would not know how to define it because the biggest problem is to know what you don't know. So what I'm looking for is someone that is just surprising me, someone that is thinking differently than me. And I'll give you an example. I had interviewed someone and asked them to solve a problem that I give to everyone. And the way that he solved that problem was something that I did not understand. So I hired him because if I don't understand it, and that's something that he understands, that's a unique talent that we can bring to our team, a unique approach that we don't have until now. And bringing something that is looking at it from a different point of view is better than bringing someone that is exactly like us And this is actually a bias that when we are uh, talking about hiring, that one should be really careful from just recruiting minimis, like other people that would do exactly the way that what I'm doing, because then we're not going to be able to actually scale and expand. We're just going to solve the exact same way. That's awesome. I love the way you think about innovation, consistently having it on mind. Just sticking with the philosophical level of questioning, When we talk about AI and ML and how you use it in your current role, what does AI and ML mean to you in in general in the big meta sense? The one thing that it's really important for me that whenever I talk to someone that is not an expert on AI and ML is to explain that this is not magic. It's not going to solve a problem that is not solvable. But what it can do, it can just take our domain expertise and be able to scale it to a way that a human by itself cannot do. And that's the computational power. So I'll give you an example. When we're talking about the anti-malware product, Defender, the one that I'm working on, and we want to be able to identify malware, we need to predict. For me, that means to predict what is when we're now seeing something for the first time, if this is going to be a malware file or not. And AI and ML for me is taking all of our knowledge, all of the domain expertise from before and all of the samples that we have gathered through the years and understanding what are the attributes that are associating this with malware and what are the attributes that are not and building something that is able to learn from that past experience and be able to predict when it first seeing something completely new if this is malware or not. If we had someone that had a super mind and remembered everything and was able to access it in femtoseconds, then that person for me would be an AI. But because that ability is not existing for us yet, 
we have to use computers for it. And that's what machine learning and AI is doing for us. It's making us pass that gap that our brain cannot do. Yeah, until we have the magic pill for it, right? Yeah. <laughs> Karen, you mentioned um, AI and ML and, you know, we, we've used that that term as well in sort of posing these questions to you. They're, they're very broad. They're very amorphous. What are some of the techniques that your team utilize or are developing? You know, we hear about neural networks and deep learning and fuzzing and all these other, I think, more more specific sort of concepts. And, you know, they're, they're probably, one's probably a subset of the other. But, like, what, what, what do you find are some of the most useful techniques that you find that your team utilize in the work that you do? A lot of the things that we are using, because it has to be in an online and it has to be very fast, currently our computational power is not allowing us to do all of those deep learning methods. So when we're talking about those snap decisions, that has to be more of the more like soft models, like random forest and uh, linear classifiers. This is for our all of our online decision making. So... The mainly the tools that we're using are those uh, ML classifiers for classification. We're also using a lot of clustering and a lot of uh, unsupervised methods in the backend to understand, for example, that a new version of file, polymorphic malware, which means that it's like a file that they just change a bit in it. It's still the same malware, but they just try to trick us. So we're all the time trying to use new techniques and bringing from academia back to our product, new techniques in order, because it is a game that we're playing with the bad actors. They're trying to find new ways to trick us, and we're trying to find new new ways to understand that what they're sending is malware. So we have to innovate and, and be on top of our game all the time. So the methods are changing all the time. But the one thing that is super important is our ability to understand our data, to see trends, to identify anomalies. That's something that uh, the big data and data science is allowing us and, and is really important in this case. What are some of the time sort of constraints that you work with here? I mean, so let's say, you know, I'm working at my, my PC and I uh, get an email with a file attached to it and I go to double click it and, you know, the Defender service somehow looks at that file and I guess sends some some metadata up into the cloud and it comes back with a determination. I mean, that's happening in a blink of an eye? Is it two blinks of an eye? Like what's the, this is a very, very short period of time that you're doing a lot of extremely complex stuff. How do you think about that? Are you working in nanoseconds, microseconds, milliseconds? So th- that's a great thing that there are a lot of very uh, cutting edge AI and ML technologies that are just currently taking too much time because the hardware is not advanced enough. And we cannot allow ourselves to use it in an, in, in an online situation because we're talking here about prediction. When you're downloading a file, if it's going to take us now a minute to give you an answer back, if this is malware or benign, you're not going to use our product. It's just going to be too much disturbance to you and it would just not be acceptable and you would rather pay the price of uh, being attacked with a malware once a year. So our answer has to come really, really fast and it's a matter of milliseconds for us which means that we have to make a snap judgment on the client. And if we cannot make it, we need to send some metadata to the cloud and then bring back the answer because we locked the file at that moment and you cannot work. So it has to be milliseconds. And that's like, you know, again, going to the medic, like the, you want to take care of patient zero, but you also don't want to do any harm. And doing harm in this case is disrupting the customers. Cool. 
What are you excited about? What's sort of coming down the pipe that, you know, is a tool or a technique that you think, or just an advancement in infrastructure that you think is going to allow you and your team to do so much more? I think one thing that uh, we're excited about and we're currently building for our enterprise customers is the ability to help them, not just in the specific protection with the anti-malware product, but overall in the organization, learn the organization, use the tools of AI and ML that we know how to use and help them to understand what is needed for their specific org. So that's something that we are currently working on, and I'm very excited about that because I think that a lot of struggle that we've been hearing from customers is like, awesome, you have this amazing new feature, but how do I know how much impact it will bring and would it cause any harm to my employees? And we are able to provide those answers to them and help them to configure it in a, like automatic way. I think one of the... The best uh, analogies that we're using now is the self-driving car. Like we are learning how to drive the car for them and helping them to drive the car. They are now doing it and they're doing it pretty good, but there are sometimes unexpected things. We are able to predict those unexpected things and respond in a faster way because it's a machine and not a human. And we can provide that help to our customers. So, Karen, it looks like you've done it all. Um, are you <laughs> done with the journey now, or is there something after this? What's the next big passion? I think that we're just scratching the surface of what we can do specifically with AI and machine learning and security. There is so much more that we can help our customers and help them to take the wheel away from them and help them to drive the car instead of just giving them the wheel. And that's what I'm excited about, about for the future, to dive more into that and bring more of those new capabilities to our customers. Is there anything in AI that you're really excited about for the future? Well, there is something that I'm really looking forward that would be developed, which is uh, our ability to build an AI that would replicate ourselves, that I would be able to have a lot of mini Karens that would go to all of my meetings and write all the emails that I need to do so I can have time to do other stuff. Time to save the world a little bit more. Karen minions. (laughs) (laughs) And they all report back to you at the end of the day with all their progress. All right. Well, on that that note, Dr. Karen Levy, thank you so much for your time. It'd be great to talk to you again in the future about more things AI, ML, and security. Thank you so much for inviting me. Well, we had a great time unlocking insights into security from research to artificial intelligence. Keep an eye out for our next episode. And don't forget to tweet us at MSFT Security or email us at securityunlocked at Microsoft.com with topics you'd like to hear on a future episode. Until then, stay safe. Stay secure. This week on the Microsoft Threat Intelligence Podcast, join us as we dig deep into the XZ backdoor with its finder, Andreas Freund, and senior security researcher, Thomas Rochia. Be sure to listen in and follow us at msthreatintelpodcast.com or wherever you get your favorite podcasts.